The following podcast contains explicit language. Hello, and welcome to our national conversation about conversations about race. The last episode of the podcast where we've discussed the ways we can't talk, don't talk, would rather not talk, but intermittently, fitfully, embarrassingly do talk about culture, identity, politics, power, and privilege in our pre-post yet still very racial America. You could say all that or just call the show About Race. I'm Anna Holmes, and joining me from the Panoply Studios in Brooklyn is Tanner Colby, the author of Some of My Best Friends Are Black. Hey, Tanner. Hey, Anna. And joining us from Los Angeles, NPR West, is How to Be Black author Baratunde Thurston. What's up, Baratunde? What's up, Anna? Hello, Tanner. (laughs) Hello. Hello, hello. Okay, so to our listeners, you might have noticed that we don't have a B-side today. And that's because this is the last episode of About Race, which was canceled by Panoply a few weeks ago. We're super bummed and disappointed, but we wanted to focus this last episode on happier things, namely the supportive comments we've been getting from listeners plus some commentary internally here on the things that we've learned over the duration of the show. So on that note, I'm going to turn things over to Tanner and Baratunde, two of the creators of the show, who, which debuted in what year? I was going to ask you what 2015. year. 2015. 2015. Okay. So guys, take it away. Hello, Tanner. Hello, Anna. Hello. Hello, um, I just, I, I think it's worth remembering kind of the initial origin story of the show, which yeah, I want to hear for, it. especially for people who have come in late, or if this is your first episode of About Race, sorry. Um, (laughs) But you can listen to the back catalog and go relive the past two years with us. Tanner, please correct me, because I think history has a way of being rewritten in some ways accidentally. But you and I were introduced by a mutual friend, Jill Filipovich, who's an incredible writer. Oh, Jill. My upstairs neighbor who dog sat for me. There you go. So your neighbor and dog sitter... My friend, she's a, a former blogger, now super heavy-hitting writer, uh, analyst, thought, thoughtful person on all things related to, to women, especially, and justice in general. Uh, good person. So you had your book coming out. Uh, some right. of my best friends are white. My book, How to Be Black, had already been out. And Jill's My book said, is Some of My Best Friends Are Black. Day. Oh, wow. That was you a slip. Flip it. That you was a really... <laughs> I, I'm sorry. I, your thought, book was, I thought it was a all joke. of my best waiting. friends are white. <laughs> I was waiting for the punchline, and I was like, "Oh, he just got the title wrong." No, it was a subconscious. It was a subconscious joke. Um, so yeah, she was basically introducing us to see if I would like read your book and blurb it, and I wasn't initially interested in doing that um, because I was tired and, <laughs> and the idea, and I was like, "Your name's Tanner." Like this sounds like really weird, but we and, and I was like, I, "I hope black people will blurb my book." Please. Yeah, it would be. I guess yeah. it'd be really awkward if you had only white people. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, that would have been really, really awkward. <laughs> so yeah, so I read it and I was like, oh, I remember being impressed that you know at some of the work you had done, and I liked the book and it was fun and funny. And so we struck up a series of conversations. It took us forever to meet face to face, as did. I recall. And in that forever, I read your book and felt the same way. Yeah. So books led to this, but really, Jill, if you guys are happy about what you've been hearing, you should send a thank you note to Jill Filipovich for the many hours of conversation jokes and analysis you've gotten. Out of our back and forth two-way conversation, um, I think it was actually at the Mudspot Coffee Shop in the East Village 
where you proposed a podcast or no, 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 live event. We did a live event, right? No, we, we did a live event. Well, here's here. So we did a live event and we sold out O'Brien here in New York City. And then we were like, you know, well, the original is like, you know, the original impetus was I wanted to have interesting conversations. I went all over the country and I sat down with black people and white people and I had really thoughtful, interesting conversations about race. And then when my book came out, I got thrust into the cable news public conversation about race. And it was just horrible. It was like kabuki theater. It was like this performative black versus white conservative versus liberal. And this is what they were trying to like, they were trying yeah, to set it up as a, yeah, okay. it was all like set up like that. And I was like, these are not the conversations I had with, with normal humans. Mm -hmm. And I wanted to recreate that. And I knew Baritone had his book out and he and I had, had sort of a meeting of the minds. And so I don't know, remember who first thought of the live event, but like, why don't we have a conversation and you brought in Soledad O'Brien to moderate it. And so that we could, you know, have these kinds of conversations. And so we did a live event with Soledad O'Brien here in New York City. I remember that. Yeah. Yeah. And it, it and that then, went very well. And then we did, were like, I, hey, yeah. I think people on that, I mean, so Soledad's production team, like they live streamed it. The video is on YouTube. We'll find it and put it in the final show notes of this show. Right. I think it's actually fun to uh, go back and watch that because mm -hmm. it set the tone for what we were trying to go for, both of us. Like one, we can't just be dudes doing this. Like we should definitely get a female voice in here. Right. She was also professional, obviously. And we were all drinking wine. And I think yes. that <laughs> casualness, um, right. the lubrication, it was a live audience and people asked questions. It was fun. It was awkward. And the original goal, now I remember, was to do a series of these physically around the country. Live. And then it turned and out that Baratunde and I are not event planners. <laughs> no, it, we're really no. bad at it. We're working and all traveling already. We were on the hook to do one in D.C. And it didn't. Wait a minute. Who was that no, with? You, first you wind up Gwen Eiffel and then, and then she had to back out. And then you, yeah. you tried to get Michelle Martin from NPR. And it just kept, we couldn't get it together. And then. And I it wasn't their fault. It was, no, it wasn't their fault at all. We couldn't get it together. It was, we couldn't get it together. <laughs> I was like, black women kept kept rejecting you. <laughs> yeah, black women kept rejecting. You. Um, and so then I remember I was listening to the Slate's political gab fest, and I was like, "Why not just do a podcast?" And I emailed you. I was like, "Why don't we just do a podcast?" And I think you had been thinking along similar lines, just of getting into podcasting as as a thing to do. And then we did. We sat down at the Mud Coffee Shop in East Village, and we were like, "Let's do this." Um, yeah, and then and we we also met with Raquel um, to keep that spirit of the first live event, which was not uh, all male and importantly not binary. Which is you know she's not here with us, but to kind of reinsert the word that she always would yeah. uh, yep. remind us of to channel some cepedaness. Right. right, you know, <laughs> binary's not not cool, and so, uh, so, so it was three people who all had memoir yeah. books and. Uh, yeah, and then we, you know, we found uh, the Slate Panoply crew, and then I think you know the other, <laughs> the other fun thing I think for people who really want to uh, know, like it's not like we were business people, it's not like we were media execs. We were just kind of hanging out with microphones, and as our schedules, you know, got even more uh, crazy, and especially mine. I mean, I think those who've been with us the whole time will remember the period where I basically just stopped showing up right. because of of new job situation with Daily Show at the time. So we've we've evolved and gone through, and I think that also opened the door to having more people pop in. It took us a while to figure that out, but we found Anna through that process. We started having more regular guests at the seat, like Jamil, like mm -hmm. uh, Fazilat, 
like Ann and Gerda Das. So yeah, that's what the, it goes back to Jill and it goes back to a live event series that we failed at. Uh, yes. Yeah. And a, and a podcast that we succeeded at for two years, which is much longer than our live event series lasted. So I got to much, much guess, longer. Look at it that way. I uh, got to give us credit a little bit. I have a question, yes. which yeah. um, is multi-part. So, oh boy, uh, of course you. Do. Oh, so yes. now, like Trump, we can just pick the parts we want to answer. No, please. Well, I don't, it's, it's, <laughs> it's, it's, it's not that difficult of a question, so you won't have to do oh, that. Oh, okay, okay. Um, also, you guys are fundamentally honest, whereas he is not. So, I want to know what is the best, worst, most surprising thing you experienced over the couple of years that you've been doing the show, and I mean, experienced on the show <laughs> as opposed to in your outside life. Bertrand, do you go first? I'm thinking. Yeah, I'm also thinking. So thanks for throwing me under the bus. But (laughs) I will stall with uh, a series of blame shots at you. The the (laughs) hardest part, I I will not be able to recall precisely the episode or even the topic. But I can remember the room. And we were at the Slate Panoply Studios when they were still in Manhattan. Uh, It was a real small room not physically very comfortable from a temperature perspective. And I just remember, I think it's actually the the theory of it or the, the impression of it is more important than the specifics. The hardest part of the show in some ways has been being wrong and hmm. coming to that realization in the moment, right? Mm-hmm. In mid-discussion point, being like, I never, th- I didn't think of it that way. And not only is it a new perspective, I think it's a more accurate perspective than the one I've previously held. Mm -hmm. And that's actually quite difficult. I like being right. (laughs) You know, I I like thinking that I see things pretty clearly internally about myself and externally about the world. And so when there's a conflict there, it can be, I think, in some ways, human nature, certainly in my own nature, to try to minimize that, Uh, maybe to pretend that I always had absorbed that perspective and this is just a slight shift in proportions but there have been a few moments where there was a tanner raquel like tension point and again this is all emotional memory not specific like rational argument points i'm going to be able to bring but i just remember these moments uh, a few of them of like oh shit i don't think i thought about that at all Hmm. (laughs) like what else have i not thought about and and I found that self-challenge, like, the hardest part of the show. The most satisfaction is probably, it comes to versions of listener feedback. What we did with the B-side, I think, is still one of the most brilliant contributions to this medium that exists. Like, we gave a space to let the audience be seen yeah. and to see themselves. And no one is doing that as consistently in this platform as I think we did. So if there's something that should persist in what we do later and what other people could take from this format, I'm really proud of that. And I spoke with a friend this past week who's really sad about the show going away. And the thing that she said helped her the most from it. She said that we modeled like better conversation. We were actually a a positive example of how you could do this. And it was, you know, one of the reasons we set it up, it wasn't really present in cable news. There's still very few multiracial discussion forums with white people involved uh, as well, you know, consistently. I think there's a lot of all people of color forums talking about race, which has value, but there's limits to that structure. And certainly white people on their own are willing to talk about race, limits to that structure. 
or this binary thing that we've tried to avoid uh, as hard as we could. So the positive, I like that comment, but I think the the greatest satisfaction I've had is our willingness to be checked by or to invite in some of these listener comments. And when they relate to each other, that's super satisfying because then you're like, all right, we're just a space, a pretty coherent space. We are welcoming ourselves into it. We're welcoming other people into it. And if someone's willing to share of such personal stuff that people have shared, like, I don't know how to talk to my child about, I'm having an issue with so-and-so at work about how do I think about checking my own version of this, that, or the other. That's a lot of vulnerability people brought. And so I think it's, uh, it's really satisfying that other people felt strangers, you know, felt so mm-hmm. comfortable opening so many parts of themselves up in this really awkward conversation about race that we continue to try to have in this country. I will say uh, the toughest thing was for me figuring out how to sort of modulate my voice for the space, which is, you know, I think we talked about this on a previous episode that, you know, black people in white spaces are constantly monitoring what they say and how they say it. And when I come to space, just, you know, the perennial example of speaking over you or speaking over Raquel and just getting a ton of email about mansplaining and whitesplaining and, da, 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 and all this other stuff when really the truth is that I'm a recovering high school debater and, and I just like <laughs> going at it. So I, I realized a lot more that I like moderating the segments because this show works much better when I'm asking questions rather than giving answers. You think? Oh yeah. Mm. Yeah. yeah. I mean, well, I mean, not that I should always be the one asking, asking questions, but when, uh, when I'm in that position, I feel people respond to it a little bit better. Learning to, to modulate and you know speak at the right volume in the right way and, and, and phrase things in certain ways so as not to trigger the backlash of Tanner needs to shut up and go in the corner and let the people of color talk, which wasn't that big, but we'd get it from time to time. And I think the, the, the most pleasant thing, the, the, the nicest thing about it has been when we do reach those moments of consensus, kind of like Reginald talked about, like where you have different people with different points of view. And we actually, you know, I, I see your point of view and we come to a, we, you know, three people start in a different place and they, different places and they come to, you know, the same place or a different place by virtue of the, the conversation. But I do think to Bridget this comment about how, you know, people appreciate us modeling good conversations. You really, I, you really do have to almost execute this in the right way because when we have executed it poorly, when we've gotten too argumentative with each other, I mean, the whole point of the show is to debate. And have a rigorous exchange of ideas, but when people feel the slightest bit of acrimony, or we hear about it, and that's not a bad thing, is it? No, they they want. I think people want the rigorous exchange of ideas, but when they feel like we don't, that we get emails and I get tweets that like you know we don't like each other. Yeah, because they immediately we address that in last week's. Yes, episode. we address that in last week's <laughs> episode. But you almost have to, you know, in terms of setting a good example, in terms of uh, in the way that. Cable news sets a horrible example. You have to do this well, otherwise people people really just immediately respond to it in a viscerally negative way if it comes at them wrong, or if they feel well, it comes at them wrong. It's there. There's this mommy and daddy are fighting kind of vibe that can come out that makes people feel tense and upset. I also think so many of the <laughs> so so many of the challenges that we've addressed or expressed and experienced. You know, they're basic relationship things, too. And I think a lot of, mm-hmm. in a good relationship, you got to know how to fight. <laughs> you got to know how to argue, right. know how to disagree without being hurtful, without being dismissive, without bringing up 
cruel, old, painful things with actually listening and empathizing without necessarily compromising on your values. Like we could be talking about race or we could be talking about love. And, and I think there's a, there's a human thing going on here that we tapped into and that other good discussion shows too. And like, we're certainly not the only ones and we're not the best ever, but in the moments where it doesn't work, it also can feel like that a familiar thing from a family relationship or a, or a, or a, a romantic relationship where the fight isn't going well. The disagreements aren't going well. And when it works, you're like, oh, wow, look at these two people, these two parties, you know, respecting each other, but still maintaining, you know, who they are. And that's, I, I don't, we need yeah. more of that. I, it's interesting, the mommy and daddy are fighting thing, because, and, and I don't know whether you were saying this, but to me, the kind of ideal relationship is not one in which mommy and daddy don't fight. It's one in which mommy and daddy fight and then they're okay afterwards and then everyone's okay afterwards. Right. Right. Like you can survive the fight. Right. Um, well, that's argument. you and me because Anna and I live close to each other and <laughs> we, we walk home out of here together and everything's fine after the fight. But I think that post game is what the people, people uh, who write in about it, they don't necessarily see that. They post-game. don't know that we're walking. So we should have yeah. kept the audio rolling all the way <laughs> on your commute home. Right. This is and clearly would have changed things for some listeners. People would and have heard me ask about Tanner's kid. Live right, stream right. all of yeah, our right. lives continuously. Yes, yes. exactly. <laughs> One thing that's interesting too, like the, the feedback that, that I've gotten specifically, emails or tweets or whatever, is I do get a lot of criticism saying, you know, I felt you said this was incorrect and, and here's something you hadn't considered. And a lot of it's very, very valid criticism. But there's there's a certain pocket of the criticism, which is, you know, you hear all the time, white people need to engage with race, white people are avoiding this, white people, you know, are, you know, they need to be leading these conversations and why is the onus on people of color? And then like the second the white person says, okay, I will deal with this, then <laughs> you immediately get this clapback that says, no, you're doing it wrong because mm-hmm. you're not doing it the way I want you mm-hmm. to do it. These like, we want you as the white person to mouth the talking points of the racial justice movement that we want you to give, not mm-hmm. you you know, come to this with opinions that we necessarily disagree but are, with. Okay, but are you hearing that coming from the same person? Or no, 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 no. I'm, yeah. I'm saying it's two different types of criticism. And the, the valid criticism is always good, and I always like getting it. But then there's this, like, you're doing it wrong because you're not doing it the way I want you to do it. And a- anyone who writes on, on the Internet gets that. You're mm-hmm. not doing it the way I want you to do it. Many times is it, why is there a white person on this podcast? Because well, that's kind of the point is the cross- dialogue you know it's you know well, i think that's a weird criticism for anyone to make and and, and no but it, it but it <laughs> happens and i i it think happens. it's also there's a history of kind of a there's no wealth in certain pockets of this country historically and i don't just mean financially i mean just access to power in general and so we've got this new medium where a relatively uh lowered gates that the keepers control you know in terms of controlling the access to things and so more voices than ever are able to express themselves, and that includes black and brown voices and female voices. And so when you taste that, I mean, I can also very much sympathize with, like, it's our turn. Everybody else shut up. Like <laughs> There is a, because for so long, the idea of this public, open, candid discussion critical of society heavily i mean this is mostly a critical show it's not that celebratory it's not like yay america you're doing great keep it up see you next week like no (laughs) it's it's pointing out all the problems and trying to do it respectfully and trying to be funny with it sometimes but i can see without any experience on either side right you've talked Mm -hmm. tanner about what you've learned being the white person 
and like some of that role of asking versus you know answering, trying to balance that. I think for people of color who are very used to talking about race, it's kind of like programmed into many of us without any opt-in choices set before us. It's, it's one thing to say like, yeah, we need white people to be involved in this. It's another thing when white people actually are involved. And then mm-hmm. we all see like how off it is sometimes, how awkward it is. And whether the white person participating is right or wrong, it's equally can be challenging. Because right. if you're wrong, you're like, but I, I really did. I thought I wanted them to speak up. But now that they've started talking, maybe <laughs> we should have some limits on white participation. Right. On the other hand, if what the white person is saying is different from what you've experienced, but feels true and valid, that's a different mm-hmm. type of challenge. Because it means like, maybe I don't know just because I'm quote unquote racial doesn't mean I know everything there is to know about race because I have one in the way that white people haven't really had to doesn't mean I have a monopoly on opinions or validity or credibility. And that's pretty humbling. You know, like that's when, when you're by default, you know, chosen to be the racial expert just because you got color, there can come with that a level of like default confidence and knowledge and lack of humility that, you know, a white voice that challenges you in a way that feels like they might actually know what they're talking about is, is a threat in a, in a, in a strange way. I, I understand why, because white people do say so many like stupid and ignorant and condescending things about race all the time. And it, it, it the media is saturated with it. But there's sort of like two different kind of pushbacks you get from, from white people. One, you get like a bunch of white people running around saying, you know, affirmative action is wrong because it's unfair to white people and all these ignorant things about affirmative action. But then there's like the criticism of affirmative action from white people saying, like, you know, we built the power structure and this doesn't really get you there. You know, like I look at what I have as the advantages I have as a white person on one hand and the advantages of what affirmative action purports to. On the other hand, I'm like, that's not going to close the gap. That's not going to get you anywhere near to where I am. And so there's a certain amount of white point of view that's needed in this conversation because like we, we made the rules to the game and and they're unfair. And so like when we say like, well, you know, this, some of these things you're trying, they don't really work. It's taken as, you know, trying to invalidate the intention behind it, but it's really, it's like, you know, my experience is not that white, that white people have, difficulty having these conversations because they have to offer criticisms. It's that they have to be subject to criticisms and they don't mm. like that. That's my opinion. <laughs> that's my take. Oh, on that's 100% yeah. true. And that's most white people. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> who, who step into the ring. Mm-hmm. Um, sure. Right. Sure. I'm, well, this is interesting. Is One other question well, that I wanted yeah. to ask yeah, you yeah, was about, well, once this kind of sustained and oftentimes contentious issue that's arisen on the show most recently, a few episodes ago, is the question of whose responsibility it is to dismantle white supremacy. And I want to revisit that for a second. I want to know whether your thoughts or your answer to that question, whether or not it's changed over the years. Baratunde, you weren't here for that episode, so I, I want you to go first. And I guess to just kind of sum up again, has the question of whose responsibility it is to dismantle white supremacy, have your thoughts on that changed? over the course of the past couple of years that you've been doing the show? No, I've always thought it was the Russian's job to do that. (laughs) And I still believe that. You can examine my record. I've been pretty clear. Um, (laughs) I don't think my position on that has evolved. I don't know how clear I've been about what that position is, but 
I certainly, uh, I think everybody, you know, in short, it's going to take everybody. I don't think white people alone are going to destroy their, their own house that comforts them. Uh, I don't believe that that would happen. I don't think most people who are benefiting from something would volunteer to stop the benefits, mm. no matter how good their hearts are. It's just, it's too much sacrifice demanded of too many people for a greater benefit that feels too abstract. It's like, wait, you just want me to give you more money? Like, no one just volunteers to pay more taxes, and that's just taxes. And that's a very small indicator of of sort of a, a, a sacrifice in the common good. So I don't mm -hmm. believe white people alone are going to dismantle their own advantage structure. Certainly, I, I don't think that people of color from without are going to have the the full wherewithal to do it. I mean, I think you know one way to destroy it is like to destroy everything. And that is certainly something that can be launched from outside. And you can, you know, burn it all down, almost literally. And that's been done historically before. There's a lot of pain. There's a lot of blood. And what replaces it is not guaranteed to be any better, you know, out of all that trauma. So the best case scenario in my mind is still exceedingly difficult, but it takes everybody. I hope that doesn't sound like too much of a cop-out, but I think we need some folks who are inside, who are allies in this. I definitely think we need new ideas and, and creativity and innovation from folks who've never really fully been entrenched because they'll be able to imagine differently. And I think if you just rely on people who quote unquote understand the system, that system will never radically change because it's not within the nature of any system to radically undo itself. You'll mm -hmm. need an external prompt at minimum, an external threat at maximum to spur a, a level of change. And that's, that's white supremacy. That's a fucking GM, you know, GE, like that's just <laughs> any big institution. I think it requires that tug, the push and the pull inside and out. So I don't know that I was that clear two years ago. We didn't quite mm -hmm. ask the question in the same way. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. I certainly in my book called out white people like, it's your turn. You know, like you got to jump mm -hmm. in there. And it's something I borrowed from this writer, Damali Ayo, who was like, we're done fighting racism. We've been at it for many generations. We're going to leave the room now. And white yeah. people, you just go ahead and handle this. Uh, we'll be sipping Mai Tais or, you know, whatever. Lapsang uh, Suchang tea or water, whatever your flavor is. So I, I'm sure I jokingly have referred to something as simplistic as white people broke it, you fix it. But realistically, I don't know that I ever fully wanted to outsource this to, to the beneficiaries of it. I mean, in terms of responsibility, it's everyone's responsibility to make the world a better place as best they can. And everyone should, of course, do everything they can to, to fix racism in this country. As far as like who's capable of doing that, Yes, a lot of white people are unwilling to dismantle the thing that advantages them, but a lot of white people just don't even, they don't know what they don't know because the whole system is designed to run on, you know, it runs on white ignorance as much as it runs on black subjugation and, and marginalization because uh, you have to keep everyone ignorant of the, the, the truth of what's happening in order to get them to go along with it in a lot of ways. And so, you know, I set out to write my book and... I didn't learn anything from white people. I went around the country and I interviewed black people and they told me their stories and they told me that they educated me. You know, I didn't really, uh, I can't say that I learned it from white people. So, you know, as far as who's the responsibility, everyone who's got the, the tools to, to start it, uh, the process, uh, you know, that ultimately un unfairly, I think is going to fall on people of color a disproportionate amount of the time. That, that they have but the tools? The, the knowledge, I guess. 
the consciousness, the wokeness to know what needs to change. Yeah. You know what? And we so, had the... But, but here, let me, let me add one thing, which is that, you know, you talk about white people aren't going to destroy their own house. And it's one of my problem with the whole privilege formulation is that I don't know why racial justice advocates insist on selling this as a zero-sum game. I don't know why it's constantly sold as taking away from white people to give to people of color. I think, I don't think life is a zero-sum game. I don't think that necessarily. Well, I don't you, know that racial justice advocates are selling it that way. Well, that's what privilege like, says. Race, we have to know. We are, have to dismantle I, the system. We have to dismantle the system of white privilege. Which, whatever you mean by that, what white people hear is we're going to take things away from white people. That is in, inherent in the message of we're going to dismantle the system of white privilege. That's what white people are hearing when you say it. And I believe the opposite, which is that everything I've done from the day I set out to write this book. From meeting Jill to meeting Bertunde to meeting you, Anna, it has only added advantage and opportunity to my life to engage constructively with this issue. And so it's not about white people dismantling their house so much as why don't we all find a way to share the same house by working together? And I honestly, and maybe that's pie in the sky and stupid and too idealistic, but I think you can transform the existing house into something that everybody can share and not say, hey, white people, you have to dismantle your house. Because if you tell white people, hey, you got to destroy the thing that's advantaging you, they're never going to go along with it. Also, too, one way people learn is just through, you know, lived experience. It's not so much of, oh, I need to do the work of this. It's just we live with each other and we grow to understand each other. And I think that's that's a huge part of it, too. What about you, Anna? Whose responsibility is it? Yeah. I, I, I think I think the responsibility is a shared one. I mean, I don't know, Bartunde, if you listened to the episode where Taryn and I got into quite a heated argument no, I about it. I'm sorry. Because yeah. I interpreted some of his comments. I think I rightly interpreted them and maybe, you know, maybe he's feeling a little bit differently now, but he he did kind of intimate, if not outright say at one point, that he felt it was up to people of color to dismantle racism that it was not the, the not the job of white people and i i took offense to that and and um you know hijinks ensued <laughs> you can put it that way <laughs> but so my answer would be that it's a shared responsibility that said i think that it's a it's a responsibility that has been borne by people of color much more than white people and that that needs to change um and part of part of discussing things like privilege is a is an attempt to try and change the conversation or change the way that people approach conversations or look at them, I agree that I don't always think that that word, for example, is particularly helpful or constructive. Mm -hmm. I think it can make some people defensive. Sometimes it's bandied about as a weapon as opposed to a descriptor. Mm -hmm. And that's not always particularly productive either. But I think it's important to remind people of the the legs up that they have in relation to people of color. I mean, to remind white people of that. I mean, you know, there was a friend of mine who sent out a, a newsletter on MLK Day. He has a new regular newsletter, and it the one you know edition arrived on MLK Day, and it had nothing to do with MLK, which, okay, fine. But the content of it was uh, was about the 1%, and it wasn't particularly critique... It, it wasn't really critiquing income inequality. It just felt so tone-deaf on that particular day. Mm -hmm. And the reason he didn't think about how that might come across or the, the, the like big chasm between it being MLK Day, Trump ascending to the presidency and this discussion about Davos. The reason he didn't think about that is because he's a white guy. So right. like, he, he didn't have to. And it yeah. was only after I pointed it out to him that I was like, that was a really weird thing to send on MLK Day of all places or all, all times. I'm not sure if I'm answering your question. Uh, no, you but, are. You know, yeah. But it's like, 
and this, this kind of relates to this t- somewhat tangentially, but I don't know if you saw this piece that was published. I think it was just published on Vanity Fair's website. I don't think it's in the magazine. And I think it was yesterday or today, which is about the woman at whom Emmett Till reportedly whistled mm-hmm. before he was brutally beaten and, and murdered. She's broken her silence. I think this is part of a book. I mean, it might be like a kind of write-up in Vanity Fair about a book that's coming out about her. Okay. But it's so... The piece in Vanity Fair is so gentle to her, you know? Mm. To, the, the, it, and she admits she admits that she exaggerated what Emmett Till had done. Not that, not that he deserved to be beaten or killed at all, but she admits that she basically paved the way for this lynching which I think is is both an accurate word, but also doesn't really communicate the horror of what happened to him enough. <laughs> There's like a quote in the piece where it says, her changed attitude, because she now has a changed attitude about Jim Crow era racial violence. Yeah, because and, she's and, alive long enough to have had a change. Because she's attitude. 82. It says her changed attitude <laughs> of genuine might have real meaning today, what with a polarized electorate and renewed racial tensions. <laughs> and this is like, I guess, where part of me feels like, no, actually, white people can't help. Because this is the sort of thing that happens from someone or the sort of thing that comes out of someone who was directly responsible mm-hmm. for one of the most horrific murders of a child yeah. within a lot of our lifetimes. I wasn't alive then, but I could have been. <laughs> right. Yeah, I, I think one of the moments from the show history that I'm recalling now, I wasn't a part of that episode, but Tanner and I had a a, a moment where basically he made that a similar argument. It's like, we're going to need you guys to lead us out of this dark place. And I'm like, I'm tired of that. I'm just tired <laughs> on behalf well, of people of color. Like I'm tired, but I, you know, what happens if we don't lead, you know, and it doesn't mean like everybody needs to participate, but yeah, you don't right. want just random people with feelings and who adhere to Breitbartism leading this right. discussion. Like it's not just any white person who should be in charge of racial relation transformation in right. the nation. I'm sorry, that was very Jesse Jackson of me. And so, yeah, there is there is the the burden that you referred to, Anna, continues. <laughs> but when you look at where the sources of of inspiration and, and light and hope and creativity are, they are heavily balanced, you know, on the backs of, of people of color still, even mm-hmm. with conscious and open-minded and woke white people increasingly joining. And the right. the, the, the degree to which I guess what angers and frustrates me the most about that is just the seeming unfairness of it and the degree to which, like, how, you know, white privilege is a real thing and how much do we have to dance around that for feeling's sake? Yeah. And can we, like, there is a value to honesty in this. And if we coddle too much, if we're like, oh, poor you, you didn't grow up understanding that the police treat you, but like, we don't have time. You know, I right. scream sometimes. We don't have time for all this. Catch up, you know, <laughs> like catch yeah. up. Read. It's almost like we need learn, Neo, Neo go in the Matrix, out there. right? Yeah, just, and it's just you put you just download the karate programs. Like, oh, I know kung fu. Like, you and, just and, have need. We need a race program to put in everyone's brain. But it's these are not exactly the same white people. It's a similar structure to the argument where this patience that we are expected to have is never afforded in the opposite direction, ever. It's not afforded in educational standards and criminal justice standards. Like there isn't very little in this world that is patient with people of color or women. Like it's just like you get one shot maybe and yep. you're done. Most people don't even get that. 
And then you want me to be patient, you know, with a community that's had infinite shots and flaunted most of them and squandered most of them. That's, that's the hardest part is, you know, being like the, the truth versus the effective. <laughs> and the truth is, I don't have patience for demands for patience, but the effectiveness, <laughs> the result that you want may require to pretend to have more patience than you actually do, <laughs> to be kinder than you are morally required to be given the way history's played out over and over and over again. That's really, is really hard to hold both of those and to recognize, you know, that, that the effective strategy may require the swallowing of, mm-hmm. a, of a more essential truth. AC, our producer, I believe is on the line. Hello. <laughs> Hi, AC. I'm curious, the makeup of the audience, I, I've never asked you this. Do you, do you have a sense of, of, of what the racial makeup was, the demographics, uh, what percentage? I mean, um, podcasts are weird in that people download them and you can't tell right. what color <laughs> they are. But one thing I'm actually really grateful for, and actually um, getting back to your earlier question about like what's the most surprising thing, we got so, so much audience feedback, and I love the B-side for that reason. And there's a good proportion of, of our listeners out there who are white, and many, many, many of them wrote in to, to thank us for doing the show after the last episode. I have also been really reassured that we are reaching uh, a lot of Latino and black folks out there. Um, I think that's I think that's been key. I think we you know, could have done better in terms of asking Asian folks to be on the show more often and addressing the issues they face. But mm-hmm. there's room for improvement everywhere. <laughs> I think we actually appeal to a pretty broad array of people. And I'm going to say that, you know, there are a lot of white folks out there listening to us. With regards to our listeners, you have some like people wrote in and, and I, left voicemails, right? Yeah, I do. About about with regards to this being the last show, and mm-hmm. are there ones that you want to share with us? Yeah, Elizabeth wrote in saying, "I'm sad this podcast is ending. There are lots of interesting podcasts about race, but this one, in all its iterations, has been always been one of my favorites. I'd love it if all of you, including AC, made podcast recs on the last episode of others who are carrying on the conversation." Thank you for your work and all that your discussions, recommendations, and individual writings have taught me. I don't know what you all are listening to aside from your right-wing podcast diet, Tanner. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's I still no, haven't, I still haven't started that. I'm like, I, I just, I'm not ready. I'm not ready. Yeah, no, it's, it's definitely, it's, you know, they're white podcasts. It really is like, <laughs> it is, they're not conservative podcasts. They're white podcasts. And, and that's really kind of the amazing thing about it. I mean, you know, intellectually white people out of touch, da, 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 da. but when you see them talk about, this whole Trump phenomenon. Are they not embarrassed? No. Well, I mean, a lot of them are never Trumpers because he's not a real conservative because his temperament and is, is, is he's unfit and, and all that. So, I mean, they're not like crazy Trump people, but it's like they don't see it in, in through the lens of race at all. Race, uh-huh. race is almost never even mentioned. I mean, they think, oh, you know, he, yeah, he's going to be bad, but like they don't recognize that, you know, it's really kind of an existential threat to the Republic. In many ways, their panic and fear over Trump has been muted by laughing at liberals and and people of color overreacting to Trump. Go look at these liberals overreacting. And granted, there has been you know uh, you know people are very very worked up and 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 have a lot of uh, 
we are overreacting to every little thing, right? I do that sometimes. I get caught up in whatever nonsense is happening that day. And, you know, I think it's the apocalypse. And then, you know, it's going to be very difficult to take the long view uh, over the next four years and, and be calm and planning and methodical. But on these, uh, a lot of these podcasts, because they're white podcasts and white America is not threatened, they don't see it as an existential threat. They just think he's going to be a bad president. He's not going to pursue some of the right policies. Mm -hmm. I'll, I'll double down on those recommendations just to really keep an eye on how white America is is reacting to this, which is not properly. Speaking of white people, <laughs> AC, <laughs> are there any more um, listener? Yeah, there's there's a bunch, actually. Just on, wrapping on the podcast recommendation note, though, um, I do want to give a shout out to Aisha Harris's represent, who she was on a little bit ago, and then this other podcast I work on does occasionally touch on race, the Ezra Klein show. Um, and I would urge people to go listen to the Heather McGee mm. episodes and uh, Jim Yong Kim, who's the head of the World Bank and was a big critic of it for a long time. Uh -huh. It talks a lot about his family's background as an immigrant family and uh, was surprisingly touching for somebody who you would think would be uh, a little bit more stiff as the head of the World Bank. I'll throw in a few. It's not quite to the readers, the listeners, the the media interpreter's uh, comment, I don't know what format she uh, sent that in, but uh, Two Dope Queens is uh, one of my favorite. It's a live show. Phoebe Robinson, uh, author of Don't Touch My Hair, Jessica Williams, formerly of The Daily Show. It's really positive. It's just a fun vibe. It's not a serious dissection of racial issues. Race does come up a lot in a lot of other identity topics. It's very funny. And I think we're going to need more uh, of that. There's, it's, we need to force ourselves to escape what uh, remains of the news cycle mm -hmm. uh, lately. And so I'd, I'd recommend that uh, I've pushed these mini series before that WNYC has done. Uh, there's not a show like ours, and maybe someone will uh, respark that or, or edit their own to, to make it that way. But WNYC did "There Goes the Neighborhood," which yeah. is still the best investigation sort of exploration of gentrification that I've seen. It's a multi-part series. They reported it. They talked to multiple people, including developers. It just wasn't this simple take on, it's bad. And then what? What does that mean? What do we do about it? Like, so uh, props to to the, the mix of reporting and commentary that went into that one. And then just totally random, totally random, but Crime Town. I love this podcast, Crime Town. People who made the jinx have a show about uh, Providence, Rhode Island. And their criminal-ass mayor, Buddy Cianci, for a long time. And it's just cool storytelling. And again, I, I don't necessarily think um, you should just mire yourself in racial discussion all the time. Uh, mm -hmm. Pop out and see how crooked white mayors can be. Like, that is great. That is, like, related to racial discussion. Like, criminal right. behavior by white politicians as entertainment. Uh, I, I endorse that uh, 100%. Not the behavior, Here's the understanding of it. Here's one other recommendation I would make that's outside of podcasts, and it's it's something that I've been thinking about what how I went through this process of educating myself and going from a white person who didn't know shit to, you know, being a white person on a podcast like this. When I'm a history nerd, right? So when I first dove into this subject matter, I just read history books, you know, and, mm -hmm. and I read Taylor Branch's histories of Martin Luther King years. Um, you know, the half has never been told warmth of other sons about the great migration gateway to freedom about the underground railroad reconstruction by Eric Foner, uh, about reconstruction. I just read what happened. 
right? And I went out, I was, did a lot of interviews at, inter- asking people about their personal histories uh, and the, the, the specific subjects that I was researching for the book. But I just read history books, you know, dozens of them to educate myself. And it was only then after I was done reading like history books that I started getting into more opinion stuff. And so much of which is written about race. Granted, history books can have their biases too, and that's all one academic argument, but like so much of what we read about race is filtered through someone's agenda or point of view. And part of the impetus, you know, we left this out of the origin story, part of the impetus of this, us doing the events and us doing the show was I realized that like me on my own, you know, offering opinions about race, like got nowhere. It was like, eh, this doesn't really work. I need to be talking to Baratunde and Anna and, 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 Anangirdadas and people like that to engage in a conversation about this rather than just opinionating. So read history books is my, I guess the, the it's what is what worked for me. I'll say that. Um, and I think it's one of the best things you can do. Thank you for that, Tanner. AC, any more? Uh, yeah. So Zoe wrote in with a request. Uh, could you post all the recommendations from every show in a place online that won't disappear? Zoe, uh, the podcast will be living at showaboutrace.com to everybody else who wants to check out the recommendations. Uh, they're at the end of every podcast, and we also have show notes. So Cody, who is uh, hardly ever on the on the show in terms of his voice, has done that for a long while and will continue to do so up until the end of this one. And here is this uh, call that I wanted to get to as well. Hi, uh, this is Alex from Boston, and I was going to call in with my first time calling in with some thoughts or questions about tribes and race and where we go from here, but then I heard in the last podcast that you guys are leaving, and I, I just found you guys after the election, and I can't say how, uh, can't thank you enough for how great it's been, and all I can say is, no! Terrible news, um, but it sounds like you guys are going to bigger and better things, so good luck to everyone. Um, maybe we took you for granted, but uh, you will be missed. Thank you. And our little Wrath of Khan kind of vibe. <laughs> I don't know that I have a question after that one, but uh, that was no, just was a sample of how, yeah. how people had been writing in and calling and stuff. Okay. Thank you. Well, guys, we have to wrap this up, our last show. So I, 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 I guess I want to just throw it to you again and say, is there anything else you want to say about your experience here to each other, um, if not to the listeners? Mr. Thurston? Uh, extraordinary gratitude for all involved. Uh, all of our co-discussants, I, I don't know how long that list ultimately is. It's probably something like 20 people over the course of our last 74 episodes uh, to the listeners slash contributors to uh, Cody, especially who really took on making sure the website worked, helping us organize each episode in the Slack. Like there's a lot of behind the scenes stuff that made this far less unorganized than it would have been if left only to the devices of people talking into microphones uh, to AC who really, you know, you've bored this as your own. Uh, and I know you've been really invested and, it has shown uh, to Alana, uh, who's with Panoply and has been quietly again helping out, not on mic, but uh, helping make sure that the people who are don't sound like total idiots. And yeah, to uh, to the Panoply crew for 
taking a shot with us and riding with us for the for the length of time that you have. And I think, you know, if I would have a parting thought, I'll, I'll, I'll have like a, a hopefully not too grandiose parting thought and then just say sort of where you can find me uh, next and how to stay connected on on that level. I um, I think that there is a real uh, dearth of some of these types of engagements and I hope that we have provided some tools for people to do this on their own. Like you don't necessarily need a show uh, constantly to to show you how to do this. Hopefully the the now 75 episodes we've offered are enough of a blueprint to spin up your own versions in your communities, in your schools, in your households, uh, on your artisanal rooftop farms or, or wherever you gather with other human beings. And, and as a, a request of all of us, I would say that um, I'm looking forward to people uh, being more creative rather than just uh, critical and, um, uh, assessing. I think, you know, even in the discussion we just had earlier in the show about de- deconstructing white privilege, destroying white privilege, whose job that is. I think there's another way to ask a different question that gets to an outcome that's better for all, which is how do we want to live? Where do we want to live? Um, who do we want to be? And how do we want to relate to each other? And we might try some experiments in our own lives and in our own forums to propose, uh, sort of cast the line out into the future um, and try to architect the new house and worry a little less about destroying the corrupt old house. If you build a good enough new house, people will just leave the old one and mm-hmm. you don't have to worry about what happens to it. It'll be empty. So I hope that we can collectively empty some of our corrupt houses by co-constructing a new one. Uh, I don't have a super large fixed project that I'm prepared to discuss at this moment. I'm working on some things. So my, my name is Baratunde. I am that on the internet, B-A-R-A-T-U-N-D-E, baratunde.com. You can email me through that. You can find all the social things through that. Uh, If there's one thing that I would want people to do to stay connected, it's old school. Just join my email list, and that's at baratunde.com. And uh, I will continue to try to carry the spirit of this collective forward into uh, solo and other collective activities. And uh, thank you. And, And thank you, Anna, for stepping in. Um, I know you're a newer member of the team, but we, uh, I've appreciated your role and in your background and uh, your rigor. So it's been a pleasure, uh, though we haven't honestly been in the same room very often during this time. <laughs> <laughs> Usually one of us being in Los Angeles for I unexplained know, reasons to, yeah. our, right. to our readers, yeah. to our listeners. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you, Baratunde. Thanks. I appreciate it. Yeah. Um, so I guess what I would say, I had an interesting experience when I wrote the, the Chris Farley biography, uh, I was talking to the actor, Brian Dennehy, and he said, you know, there's, there's only two reasons to do anything as a, as a creative person. One is to pay the rent because the rent has to be paid. And, and two is, is to learn more about yourself. Um, and I thought that was interesting because you always think, oh, the, the point of being a journalist is to educate the public. The point of being a comedian is to entertain. Not really. The, the point is to make yourself a better person and a more well-informed citizen and, and a better human being. And by doing that, the byproduct of that is that you uh, can educate someone as a journalist or that you can entertain as a comedian. But really, your, your main goal is the improvement of yourself and the other things are a byproduct of that. And I, I thought that was a really interesting way to look at things. It's not necessarily definitive, but it's, it's an interesting way to look at things. And that was definitely the way I undertook my book, I didn't set out, it wasn't really a book about race. It was a book about 
the high school that I went to, the churches that I grew up in, the neighborhoods that I grew up in, the places where I worked. I went to look at the history of race in my world so that I would understand how I got here. Um, and so that I could be a more, because I kind of saw, you know, I saw where the f- the future was coming or where it was going to, which is that the Obama's election, which was the, the inspiration for the book, was a sea change in this country. And you need to be a new kind of citizen to survive in this new kind of country. And I was like, I need to be, maybe I didn't articulate it that fully at the time, but like, I need to be the kind of citizen who can be on top of this, this new country that we're becoming and not get left behind. And I think so often we, especially with to white people, we come at the issue of race is like eating your vegetables, that it's some obligation you owe to someone else. And that's true, but it doesn't sustain that long because who wants to eat their vegetables all the time? And I got into this and the more I got into the history of it, it's fascinating. It, it, it made me a more thoughtful and interesting person. It enriched my life through the people I met, people like Anna, people like Baratunde, people like AC and Cody. And, and, you know, it expanded my universe in a way that I see my white friends who are, you know, nice, liberal, progressive, have all the right attitudes, but are still very much cosseted in their world. And my life is richer in ways that theirs are not because they haven't opened up their, their world and their consciousness in that way. And so that's a message that's primary for white people because I come out from my perspective, but I think that's true for anyone, whether if you're a black person who, you know, has stayed primarily in, in within the black community or Hispanic, whatever, where you haven't necessarily reached across the aisle as much as, as, as other people have. It, it is only a plus to you. It is only a, a gain for you. And by becoming thereby a better human being and a better citizen, you then enrich the country and, and, and hopefully become a part of the solution as, as opposed to someone who's, who's holding this back. When you go around this country, you, the color line is a physical thing, right? You go to places like Kansas City, there's a street called Truce down the middle of it. And it's just, there's some signs of life in the last 10 years, but for decades, it was just a bombed out wasteland. It was just like this demilitarized zone between the black side of town and the white side of town. And if you go into that demilitarized zone, it's kind of the final frontier in this country. You know, we've closed the physical frontier. We've been to the moon, but there's still this huge open space that we've blasted out and deserted between us. And if you go there and find and meet the other people there, like Anna and Baratunde, uh, you'll you'll find something new there. And there's opportunity there to make, like Baratunde says, to build a new house, to make new things. And um, it's an exciting place to be. And it's a necessary place to be with what happened this past November. That's what I've learned, and that's what I would encourage everyone to do. So I'm going to leave it there. It feels, it feels like a nice note to end on. So to our audience, that is all for today. Um, I want to thank our producer, AC Valdez. Thank, thank you, you AC. Our research assistant, tech maven, Cody Carvel. Thank you, Cody. He just waved back. Thanks also to Alana Milner, Laura Mayer, and Andy Bowers at Panoply. You can see its entire roster of podcasts at panoply.fm. In the meantime, thanks to all of our listeners for joining our national conversation about conversations about race. Tanner, Baratunde, and Raquel, thank you for bringing me on board. And thanks to our listeners for keeping it real. I'm Anna Holmes.